0: rid of dwells hair. And then we moving by the pack so we moving them. And even if you don't then you do because you're cool with them, they be like I only went to school with them Let's get it.
1: So welcome to coloror correctionction Jesus E kind of podcast about race. I'm Andrew, he him Asian.
0: And I'm Bethany, I'm a black woman, and I use she, her pronouns.
1: So why don't we quickly start by talking about some corrections or some feedback that we have that we wanted to bring up about our last episode. So I wanted to acknowledge after listening to our last episode a bunch of times that there are non-white depictions of Jesus, both from churches and other contexts and also uh, people that are trying to deliberately... Rewire Jesus in their brains, kind of the same way that we were talking about.
0: We want to highlight the fact that there are really rich depictions of Jesus. Uh, we got really focused on how many white depictions there are, and that's really true. Um, but there are also really beautiful depictions.
1: Yeah. Um, do you want to say your thing?
0: Oh yeah, I forgot. Um, so my correction this week in episode three, I identified a coworker as a gay man. Um, And I think that it's really important to distinguish that he's not a gay man. He identifies himself as a queer man. I think it's really important uh, to understand and honor the way people self-identify and to make sure that we identify them the same way.
1: So we're doing something different this week. Since Chris is on vacation, we're sitting down with some uh, two friends of ours. Um, You want to introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is
2: Matt Tice. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I am white.
3: My name is Maria Guzman. My pronouns is she and her, and I am Puerto Rican.
1: So Matt and Maria are uh, social workers that work in the supportive housing field here in Philly. And Matt actually came to us a few weeks ago with kind of a cool idea to do an episode on. When we say supportive housing field, we're talking about the fact that you guys work with individuals that are homeless. Or formerly homeless, that we're helping them get into housing, yeah. And what you came to us to talk about, what you pitched was this idea of talking about the current overdose crisis.
0: Especially because what we see in the media seems like um, the overdose crisis is only affecting white folks. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and Matt gave us a whole lot of material. Yeah, we had to do a whole crash course. <laughs> yes, on how the overdose crisis is affecting a lot of other populations than what's commonly depicted in the news.
1: Uh-huh. Part of our crash course reading and when we were researching this topic was going back historically, going back decades, because mm-hmm. it's all kind of one. It's one thing after another. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: I think it makes sense to give a little background on what the War on Drugs is.
1: Okay.
0: Um, So the War on Drugs began in June of 1971 uh, when the U.S. president at the time, Richard Nixon, declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one. And I was tempted to do an impression, but I don't have a good impression of him. I do have a good impression of John Kennedy. Um.
1: (laughs) We'll have to weave him into the conversation somehow you can do it. (laughs)
0: Um, And because he declared that public enemy number one, he went on to increase federal funding for drug control agencies and drug treatment efforts. Um, And once he initiated that funding, um, and really ramped up the police presence in a lot of neighborhoods and policing of what was considered drug infested um, neighborhoods. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that the incarceration rate increased by two hundred and twenty two percent. And then in the 1990s, uh, we noticed that mass incarceration in the war in drugs really started to affect black populations. And. Um, so black folks in the 1990s were almost seven times as likely to be incarcerated as white folks. And today, black folks are still four times as likely um, to be incarcerated as white folks. So this started in 1971, and it really has dramatically lasting effects on our communities to this day.
2: I'd also add that there's there's ways in which policies and laws Have far preceded that point too, like in just, especially as it ties to um, drugs and reaction to drugs, and informed by racism, classism, all of those things.
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: Where you know, there's there was there there was a reaction to cocaine use that was very normalized in the earlier uh, part of the 1900s. But then when um, there was a perception that was being used within the black community that it was then um, criminalized and um, police departments were using higher caliber bullets to say that, like, they're not going to be able to stop black men that were charging at them, that they needed to be able to uh, shoot them. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, the idea of changing things around with marijuana. Well, it was actually termed cannabis, but let's put it through the lens of well, we already feel a certain sort of way about Mexican and brown people, so let's put it under the terms of marijuana instead, and that became part of our vernacular. So there's lots
0: of Wait, things. Wait, say more about that. So marijuana is supposed to be a more like
2: well, it, it elicits brown that like this is well, I mean, it's it it's not like that is the Spanish word for cannabis.
0: Oh, I never realized that. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And they started calling it marijuana to like exoticize it.
2: Yeah, like uh-huh. and and then it's like, oh, well, then you'll probably start to react to it in a uh-huh. certain different way when it's through that lens. That's really oh interesting. Oh my gosh, I never knew that. Yeah.
0: But what you're speaking to is the criminalization of drugs
3: based in racism. Mm-hmm.
1: And taking us up to today, I mean, this is well, going to. Can you, can you up... talk about that? Yeah.
3: And back in, I was born in the sixty. Uh-huh. Well, I'm not gonna say it. my age. <laughs> but back then, like I, I was telling Matt that the war on drug wasn't opened. it was closed. You didn't see it. Okay. The war of drug didn't open until the, I would say, eighty nineties, when you started hearing that language, right, the language war on drugs, war on okay. drugs, such as you know, there were there was cocaine, there was marijuana but it was quiet you know it was sold mm-hmm. in a quiet way you didn't see it you didn't see people in the corners nothing until like i said 80s and 90s mm-hmm. that's when everything started opening up people were selling it in the corners people were you know using it more and it felt like a whole different world hmm.
0: like the, the structure of your neighborhoods or yes. like the it was essence just, of the neighborhoods started was to a shift,
3: shift. Interesting. Because I grew up, where I grew up, I grew up in, in Wallace Street. Back then, I mean, there was nothing to say, just kids playing like normal, and you didn't see the drugs, like I said. But when the 80s and 90s came, that was big, and that's when everything opened up. Now you go through there, there's no houses. There's no houses on 19th Street, 18th Street, because that's where all the drugs were at. Wow.
0: So it's interesting. I feel like... I grew up in Northern Liberties in the 90s, um, before it was in the Northern Liberties that it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like really dehumanizing language was really common to describe people that were struggling with drug addiction. And it was just kind of the norm that you might have somebody that was struggling just walking around and everybody knew them. Everybody could identify them. Sometimes they would get locked up for maybe six months. There was one guy that lived in our neighborhood that would usually get locked up in the wintertime and then would would get released when it got warm outside like, again. Because as a kid, you don't think that much of it. But now that I'm an adult, especially an adult that works in supportive housing, I think of how um, just tough that is that he had to have that strategy to stay warm mm-hmm. in his in his struggle and in his addiction.
2: Yeah, and that's h- kind of how we reacted to people who were dealing with things with substance use and mental health diagnoses, um, uh, struggling with all of all of the things that we would say. Well, there's there's a failing with you. There's something mm-hmm. wrong with you.
0: And-, and it seems like that's what the viewpoint was coming mm-hmm. up in the '90s that mm-hmm. something was wrong with that person.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not not at all about like whoa, the institutions or the the wider system system has failed us or created the circumstances that have led to to where he was at mm-hmm. but that's a great point too about like what you were talking about earlier with if nothing else there's a perception but I think that there's a, a there's certainly truth and reality in the way that we have shifted over time to think about things from a more compassionate or inclusive perspective Perspective over time to, with the two different, these two different epidemics um, we had before, whereas all just based on, um, you know, there, those folks are bad. They have done bad things. They should be punished. Now, how do we help bring them back into the fold and have a different, different view?
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think
2: is responsible for that shift? I do think that there is a component of the demographics of those that are impacted by it, I don't think that that's that's a thing that we can ignore. I think that some of the earlier stages of this current crisis meant that there were a lot of people that were being impacted that were not black, brown, poor. Mm -hmm. And then that may have driven a response to say, let's figure out something different here, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But... If we just exclusively focus on that, we miss out on all the rest of the picture that there are many, many more people than uh, than this saying that it's just a white problem.
0: That makes it hard for like people like me that grew up in North Philly Mm -hmm. in the 90s that saw how black folks that were struggling with crack addiction were treated. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of black and brown folks struggled to care mm-hmm. about this current crisis because nobody cared about us mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Can you give us a little bit of background on um, where where we're at in the current um, overdose crisis? Some of the research that I did um, connected the current crisis um, to the release of OxyContin in mm-hmm. the 19, not mid-1990s mm-hmm. and how doctors were prescribing that,
3: like... Sweet potato pie. Yeah, you can you give us tomorrow. a little bit more?
2: Mm. What we,
3: I say so. like it was no tomorrow. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and 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 really, a lot of that was driven by profits and like. Um, so, just as a as a quick quick history lesson, um, the pharmaceutical companies recognized that there was a. Uh, Driven some by um, some by lobbyists, some by um, well-meaning doctors to recognize that pain was an important thing that we should be helping people deal with. Mm-hmm. They did not need to feel pain, um, or they shouldn't have to be feeling pain to the extent that they did. And so then they were much more apt to do this, but then they also found that that was a great way to make a lot of money mm-hmm. and make a lot of money and, and um, market it that way and market as though it was not addictive or that uh, it, it wouldn't be as problematic or that they would downplay. They used really, really poorly uh, researched evidence that wasn't, really wasn't even evidence to, to begin with to justify these things, and then it was just a cascade that rolled from there. And uh, and so that's what kind of started some of these early stages of way over prescribing.
0: We were talking about the history yeah. of where we're currently at in this overdose crisis um, and how that started with what seems like kind of greedy pharmaceutical companies yeah. pushing prescription.
2: So as, as a lot of people started to use um, prescription medication or prescription pain, uh, pain medication, that they, they may have a limited supply of those things or they may be able to only access it for a certain amount of time. And then what you do find is that you're, you're cut off or you don't have access to it anymore, either through your doctor or you can't have a prescription for it. And so what do you turn to? Well, the street has a lot of other, um, options. A lot of other options. But unfortunately, the street also is, um, is an inconsistent supply. And, um, and there's no way they're not pharmacists, they're not chemists, uh, that, that a lot of times where this is coming from. And so then we're having um, other cutting agents that are coming into the supply at that point. And that's where um, in the more recent years, about 2015, we've seen the major proliferation of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. into the drug supply. And that's what's really driven the overdose crisis. And we see a major spike in in the the fatal overdoses, where prior it may have been because of too much. Now people are dying because there's inconsistency in the supply. And it's way easier to access illicit opioids than it is to get prescription opioids, Uh too. Most anything that gets to the street is not going to be pure. It's usually had other additives. Now we see much more where it's almost all fentanyl. Mm. There's really next to no heroin that's, ex- especially here in Philadelphia Wow. Um, and other places. Until the last couple of years, there had been a couple different corners where you could find um, like actual, well, we don't even really call it heroin anymore. We just call it dope because dope is an all-inclusive term.
1: Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier. Race plays into this part of the story where we're talking about prescription medications being more available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know you you said, Matt, that that's not the whole story, especially recently now that prescription medication is harder to get to Mm -hmm. and people Mm -hmm. are turning more to street drugs. So in that sense, the overdose crisis is expanding to other demographics. But how accurate is the perception that it started with white people?
0: That's what I got from the articles that we read, too, is that, like, white people had good medical coverage Mm -hmm. as well. They're more likely
2: to be prescribed, too. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, in in my experience as a black woman, I've had doctors, like, I'm very sensitive. I think I say this every episode. But I feel pain. Mm -hmm. I've had dentists annihilate my mouth like i can't feel that pain and i i read a study maybe a a year or two ago um, that it was maybe like a hundred doctors got polled, and more than 50 percent of them believe that black folks had a stronger Mm. pain threshold Mm. and this was like in 2017 or 2018 so it seems what i deducted from the articles that we read was that like Black pain probably wasn't recognized as easily. So, black and brown folks weren't initially being prescribed Oxycontin as quickly.
2: Not, uh, not recognized or believed? Yeah. Would, would you say anything else on that side? No, you're for correct. You,
3: Maria? I, would, I, I agree with that. Do you have that experience saying? too as a Puerto Rican it. woman? Yes. Okay. I do. I do have the same experience. I've, like, I, I don't have a pain for threshold. I mean, pain for me is, is pain. Yeah. So if I I've, I've gone to doctors and yeah numb me as much as you can because I don't want to feel it, but yes I feel that you know that if a white woman goes in like you said they will give it to them and when they look at us they'll be like no oh, questioning I'm, I'm questioning yeah think you're seeking and I've seen it
0: oh you've seen the differentiation between yes, white yes, women white being treated women for treat pain. It and
3: yeah and a, a black or a brown woman. yeah. You know where, or male, because it's not even only wo- women only, but males too. That you look at them and you're, and they're right in talking to the doctor, and they're like, "Oh, I just came and I just I have a pain in my leg that I can't take it." Okay, here, a white person,
0: Mm-hmm.
3: a black or brown person comes in. I don't think so. I think you need to go to pain management.
0: Yeah, as a brown person, how do you, and now that you're in this work, how do you feel about the current response or how are you responding? Because it took me a long time to like start caring about the overdose crisis. I would say I just started caring when I started talking to you more. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) I've
3: worked in this field for more than, I would say 15 years. And every time it's new to me. Mm. Like, I've, I see it and I'm like learning something new every day about it. And it's hitting as I see a lot of my people, like brown people, Puerto Rican people, mm-hmm. black people, you know, white people. I care for them. And I, it's just looking at them and not knowing how to help sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. And I feel that if I could give a little bit of myself doing what I do then maybe we could change a little bit of what's going on. Mm-hmm.
0: I was going to say, I probably shouldn't say that I just didn't care. I think that that comes from from the experience of seeing the way people that looked like me retreated in the yeah. 90s. Um, and then even seeing the results of how communities have been torn apart because fathers were taken out of homes and what is not always talked about, but the fact that mothers mm-hmm. um, were taken out of homes mm-hmm. as well. The the incarceration rate for women has increased like 700% since I think the 1970s or 1980s. Um, so it's not that I don't care for or love people because this is a Jesus-y podcast. Right. Christians should love everybody, right? That mm-hmm. compassion Correct. should be at the right. center of what we do. I just think the trauma of seeing that, and feeling so disregarded by the government makes me just kind of evokes a twinge of um resentment mm-hmm. towards yeah, well, seeing it gives you what anger. anger yeah and it's anger it's just anger absolutely because you
3: you're looking and you're seeing and I've been seeing this for such a long time that I feel there's no hope for uh well hope there is it's just that like you said um they're not doing anything to help mm mm-hmm. mhm and we, we, as a group, we try to do what we can. But if the government's not helping and doing what they can, what do we have?
2: Plus, also, we have other media narratives that, right. are, that are just still kind of doing a lot of blaming, but while mm-hmm. also um, glorifying other certain groups or like the whole idea about what recovery is based on. Um, you know, whites over here that they're coming. And, and this is really great how they're making the steps and the strides while we still incarcerate at really high levels. Or mm-hmm. we, still, we still have a lot of the laws in the books around how we prosecute cocaine versus crack possession. Right. Um, those things are still there. And so if we're not dealing mm-hmm. with that, it's going to still continue to be a wound that will, that will bleed while we dress and and soothe this other thing on the other side.
0: I think that's the way a lot of black uh-huh. folks and, and yeah. Latinx folks are landing, because
2: mm-hmm. we
0: saw it. Yeah, Our friends and cousins and a lot of people died or just got locked up. So seeing how kindly other folks are being treated, um, it's just really tough to deal with, as yeah. yucky as that sound saying
2: well and and we're seeing it some with some other public figures here in philadelphia some really prominent especially black uh figures who are really struggling with ideas about um supervised consumption sites for instance or other interventions that are that are utilizing harm reduction and say well when when i got when i got clean who are we
0: talking about
2: (laughs) we're we're talking about uh solomon jones okay so Solomon Jones really, really has a, a wide platform. Both Praise One Hundred and Seven, uh, he also is on WURD and also writes for the Enquirer, and uh, he has talked about that this is a this is a white problem. And there's there's a legitimate feeling with that, mm. but it's also should we just leave everybody there? Also, when we're thinking about. Um, you know last year 1100 people died in Philadelphia from drug overdoses one third of that were black and brown folks mm. so if we're talking about an intervention to bring down death yes many were white but that that number is actually going up mm-hmm. and it's it also was three times the homicide rate for black individuals in Philadelphia too so uh, let's target all of that. And also recognize that it's going to get worse for right. a lot of other people.
0: Right. So feeling like this is just a white issue is kind of disregarding the intersectionality yeah, of absolutely the current overdose crisis.
2: Yeah. And we keep seeing that more and more so the, the, the growing needs and the growing issues are within black and brown communities.
0: Yeah. So I, I feel like I really want to hone in on what we can start doing because like you said it is um affecting our neighborhoods so what what can i do
3: um i think th- the best way is to get educated get okay. trained on what to do you know on our can get trained on what to do if you see the pac- the person down um i think that's the most important thing you could do okay get educated
0: where can we get educated
3: at
2: <laughs> there are lots and lots of uh places out there like first off um, if we are talking about naloxone or Narcan, um, it's available by standing order. And so that what that means is that anyone can go to any pharmacy and should be able to ask for it. Not Pharmacists are supposed to be able to educate and t- tell people about how to do it. Um, there's actually some really great resources through the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disabilities through their website here in Philadelphia. And you can look for where there's trainings. They're doing a lot of them at local libraries or other community centers. Um, so carrying those and having them on, having that on you at all times, honestly, is, is fantastic. I was telling Maria about an instance where I was coming home from um, a Sunday meeting and I was driving down Germantown Avenue and there was a guy lying in the middle of the street. And he'd actually been pulled up by this beautiful group of like uh nine or ten black women that were in the middle of a bachelorette party and like they had like dragged him from his uh, from his car where he was overdosing and like they they pulled him to the street where wow. I saw him and uh and then I was able to administer the the naloxone or go through all the steps on that and uh it was it was kind of this cool thing of like a bunch of community members all just kind of looking out for this guy. And then eventually EMS showed up and, and they said, you know, you guys have saved his life.
0: Wow. Can you give us a brief description of what Narcan or Naloxone mm-hmm. is? I yeah. think most people know, but just in mm-hmm. case.
2: Okay. So in an overdose, an opioid overdose, your brain is filled with these, um, uh, they they have receptors the, I actually
0: didn't expect you to start this way. I uh-huh. thought you were just going to say it reverses an overdose. No, this, As soon as you said brain and receptors, I was like, oh, shit, he's really going we're in. Gonna,
2: we're going to go for this. Um, they, uh, the opioid will actually bind to these receptors. And if there are too many of them, what that actually does is that it essentially um, suppresses breathing. The person stops oh, breathing wow. as a result. Okay. But naloxone, or Narcan is its brand name um, for the nasal spray, which is very easy to use, it has a stronger affinity to those receptors. So it will actually bump off the opioid, off of the receptors, and then allow that person to then breathe. What that's really exciting to me, when I finally made this realization, and it was explained to me by this amazing advocate, their name is uh, Blythe Barnow. Uh, They do work out of Ohio around faith and harm reduction and Mm. explaining naloxone as a means of resurrection, oh wow and uh so you have an, and, and really it's only a drug that's uh that's there for when a person is at the brink of death
0: mm-hmm.
2: you can't use it otherwise if uh, like you know i can do it to me right now and it won't do anything at all because i don't have opioids in my system but what it does is it takes you from that moment and it brings you back And it, it allows this for this opportunity of resurrection and new life for that person which is so beautiful uh-huh. to me. That's so intense. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I got really into this. And so
2: we have a chance to share resurrection, essentially, to to bring people back from the point of death, and then they, then we can share that whatever that recovery looks like for them at that point.
0: Wow. Huh. That's interesting because you obviously have like a very um, Jesus centered perspective on harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in hearing you say more about that as well, Maria. I do
3: feel that um, Jesus put me in the right place. Mm, You feel this is like your calling. My calling to help these vulnerable people that need somebody. I think God is a person that fills everybody. And I feel that he put me here for a reason, Mm -hmm. to help. And where I'm at working, that's what I love to do. And that's I feel that that's my face yeah really know? getting in there with right. people Correct. like Jesus did yes
1: yeah well Bethany you use the word harm reduction what, maybe we should define that term matt you you've our you're a resident reservoir of information tonight you want to tell us what harm reduction is so harm reduction typically has uh, involves a few different components
2: one is that it's um, it's a practical recognition that people do and will engage in what could be risky behaviors or things that could re- uh, represent risk, but there's a compassionate and pragmatic way that we can reduce those risks mm-hmm. or, or reduce the harm. And it also it's a kind of a movement of social justice recognizing individuals that do engage within those uh, things. So somebody who might um, who may use drugs, or somebody who does sex work, or uh, who um, who does uh, any any number of those things, but that they're not they're not less than.
1: The, the criticism of harm reduction is that it enables mm-hmm. bad behavior. Yeah, but. Um, But also, is riding your bike bad
2: behavior? Or like, I I suppose that somebody might consider that to be true. But then you put a helmet on. Uh What it, what harm reduction does try and do is that it removes that moralistic judgment and just takes that person where they're at. But it also has has a a saying that harm reduction takes a person where they're at, but it doesn't leave
1: them there. Interesting. Mm, Yeah. You know, Bethany, you you and I were talking about how. The concept of harm reduction feels kind of Jesus-y, but we weren't able to put our finger on why. Yeah. Does it feel Jesus-y to you? Oh, totally. I want to read you this quote. Okay.
2: Um, And this is from Erica uh, Paulette. Paulette, I probably said it wrong, but she's of faith in harm reduction. And so what what they said was, um, harm reduction is holy, faithful resistance rooted in love and unapologetically insistent on justice. Is the expression of radical welcome and the welcoming of all stories and paths. Does that not give you give you goosebumps? Because, like, that does yeah. totally.
0: <laughs> and that's probably why it feels Jesus y uh. to us. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus was the ultimate hospitable host. Mm-hmm. It seems of like all it's types full of, of people. grace. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And welcomed in all types of people wherever they were at, mm-hmm. where they were at. Yeah. Yes. Harm reduction definitely feels like the Christian response to overdoses yeah yeah.
2: I mean it was somebody within the community it was uh that that actually included me to come into the work that I was that I'm currently doing um and when they were explaining harm reduction to me I was like that just sounds like grace yeah I love grace that's how I function as Mm -hmm. a as a person and so they're perfectly aligned
0: yeah
1: cool anything else we want to say about the subject or do we want to add anything that I feel like, like that a good, good place to end, yeah, right? That was yeah. perfect. <laughs> All right, cool. So one thing we like to do to close out is kind of talk about what we're into this week. Yeah, you guys, do you guys want to play along? Sure. Okay. Um, Bethany, why don't you kick us off?
0: Sure. Um, so I struggled to think about something that I'm into this week because I feel like I've been really busy and unfocused, and I've been spending a lot of time watching my 600 pound life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just my guilty pleasure. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I'm into for real for real is one of my favorite YouTubers. Her name is Jackie Ina. Just dropped a palette that is super dark skin, black girl friendly, which is really hard to run into when it comes to makeup. I am a very dark skin woman and oftentimes uh yeah, eyeshadow palettes are not for me. So Jackie Ina, black YouTuber Dropped a a palette with Anastasia Beverly Hills. It's $45 at Ulta and Sephora, but it's beautiful, and I have the eyeshadow on today, and I swear I've looked at myself at least 30 times and just (laughs) stared into my own eyes. I've been admiring it this whole time. You love it, don't you? It's so beautiful, (laughs) and it's iridescent, and it kind of turns different colors, so that's what I'm into, black girl makeup.
2: Cool. Matt? Matt? Um, There's been this fantastic podcast that I've been listening to lately. It's called Crackdown, and uh, um, it's talking about the war on drugs, specifically kind of covering it like a war. Like, like Mm. people who are war correspondents, but from the perspective of people who are drug users and uh, that they're the ones that are front lines. They're the ones that are losing their lives. It's, it shouldn't be about cops. It shouldn't be about, it shouldn't be about me as like a service provider. It is those that are being impacted Mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's fantastic. And so I highly recommend this podcast crackdown. Cool. Cool. Maria.
3: Cool, Me, I, I would say I love music. I love any type of music, Christian, uh, pop. It's probably because my husband's a DJ. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but um, music to me is music to my ears.
1: Is there something specific that you were listening to today?
3: Today? You won't believe it if I tell you. Oh please, Demi Lovato. <laughs> I love
0: Me Demi too. Lovato. That Sorry, Not Sorry, Sorry song, song. I listen to that five times in a row. I start my workout with that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know
3: why. I just you know for love some reason I love it. She can sing her tail off. Yes.
1: All right, cool. Yeah, this week I'm into um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the the man himself.
0: <laughs> First of all,
1: he's had such a weird career. He
0: really has. He was um, very popular in the '90s yeah. on sitcoms
1: basketball player, but also he's written two novels and a comic book about Sherlock Holmes's brother, Mycroft Holmes. <laughs> but specifically, I'm referring to an article that he wrote called Bruce Lee was my friend and Tarantino's movie disrespects him.
0: Oh, yeah. Cuz there's been a
1: whole, that. yeah, there's been a whole kind of little controversy about Bruce Lee's depiction in in Tarantino's new movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sticking up for his friend bruce lee i wow. really like that also a
0: martial artist
1: yeah i mean they were in a movie they were in a movie together yeah yeah, cool. yeah. so um thanks for stopping by and talking to us
0: yeah that was this fun. was great yeah. thank, you thank you for, us. Having, thank you. for, thank us. You for having us thank you so informative yeah, really.
1: special thanks to joe mahoney our technical director and to luke bartolomeo our communications manager our theme song is by jared selby bethany
0: <laughs> stay black little mermaid
2: Good um, icon. Uh, I I cannot forget he. Icon yeah. icons uh-huh. is um, uh, black Jesus from the Coptic uh, tradition.
0: Coptic is Egyptian American art,
1: mm-hmm. oh, or just Egyptian.
0: No, I don't know why I said Egyptian. Yeah, just Egyptian.
1: Yeah. Johnny's Egyptian American. <laughs> yeah. I
0: think I was just thinking of Johnny's yeah, my his... favorite Egyptian American. <laughs>